Nowadays, we put a lot of AV on the ones and zeros. We have to make sure that it gets there with integrity. They want more features, but they want to see less hardware. We're very much focused on others just as an industry. This is the Pro AV Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on market scale. Sound check complete. Let's go. All right, welcome to the Market Scale Pro AV Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of the show. We have a lot of great stuff that we need to dive into this week. Our first conversation today is going to center around the use of Pro AV in retail. Uh, so our correspondent Beth Osborne is going to join us to recap the way that retail locations utilize Pro AV over the holidays, and she's going to walk us through some specific examples detailing how AR and VR really made a big push into the retail landscape this holiday season. We're also going to get into security a lot on this episode. We're going to talk about how as Pro-AV devices have grown increasingly interconnected, the need to ensure the security of these devices has really grown quite a bit. So protecting Pro-AV equipment from bad actors is really an important step in making sure that a project goes off without a hitch. We're going to talk to Tim Albright, the president of AV Nation Media. He's going to join us this week to discuss the steps that can be taken to prevent security issues before they ruin one of your projects. So it's going to be a big episode coming up ahead of us. We're going to get to that conversation with Beth Osborne coming up next on the Market Scale Pro AV podcast, just diving into the world of AR and VR and how they were used in retail spaces over the holiday season. You're going to want to hear this conversation coming up next on the Market Scale Pro AV podcast. All right, joining me now on the Market Scale Pro AV podcast is Beth Osborne. She's one of our Market Scale correspondents. And recently, she wrote an excellent article for our publication on some of the Pro AV technologies that retail outlets utilized over the holiday season to encourage customers to visit their brick and mortar locations. It really souped up uh, their physical locations quite a bit. And so uh, we're going to talk about that today. Beth, thank you so much for joining me on the Pro AV podcast. So glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, so, uh, Throughout the holiday season, uh, we really saw these uh, retail outlets utilizing Pro-AV quite a bit to try to soup up their uh, their brick-and-mortar locations, just get people into stores a little bit more often. And one of the big players in doing that was AR, augmented reality. Uh, so kind of walk us through some of these examples. Who was using this te- technology and how exactly were they utilizing it? Sure. So everybody wants an experience these days every consumer does it's not just enough for a company to or brand to have great merchandising and great products there has to be some kind of experience and that's really where augmented reality and virtual reality have come into play and much more so for millennial shoppers who now are the largest um, generation and are digital natives. So if you want to attract those kind of people into your brick and mortar, then you've got to put something out there that intrigues them. Um, So AR and VR certainly things that will lure people lure people in um, to the stores. So some brands that I checked out, uh, one is Lego. So everybody knows what Legos are and they're um, a great toy for kids, but they also teach them different things and it's all about imagination. So it makes a lot of sense that Lego would create this AR studio and kind of invite the users in to 
create something in the augmented world, but then actually go back to the physical world and the Legos and kind of try to recreate it. Um, they did that using Apple's AR kit um, with, with their app. And it definitely probably interested girls and boys in, into a Lego type gift um, from Santa. <laughs> um, some, some other um, really cool applications are the Target Beauty, Beauty Studio, which um, is something that Target set up in about 10 stores, and they're probably going to um, increase that footprint. So it's kind of, it's a UCAM makeup app. And we've seen this a little bit before. I think Sephora has dabbled in this, not necessarily as um, as an AR, VR, but I really feel like this ap application of letting people try on different colors um, for their eyes or their lips or their cheeks makes a lot more sense in a VR type of environment than just somebody coming in and looking at the physical products and wanting to try them on, but maybe there isn't a tester there, or maybe the, you know, maybe they think it's not sanitary necessary to, to, to use like the tester type of thing. So having that technology that allows somebody to come in and be like, oh, this is exactly how this lip shade would look on me with my skin tone. And right. it either looks really cool or, or not. Um, Another really great use of AR is by the retailer Zara. Yeah, this one this one really intrigued me, and and I think it's a really really good idea. Go ahead, uh, kind of explain how Zara used the the AR uh, the AR technology in their stores. So one really cool thing about Zara is they're very much known for um, having stuff like on. Um, you know, right there immediately after it's been like on a fashion show or it's been introduced. So it's, they have this really quick turnaround of something um, being seen out there on a runway and then it's available in the store. So to create that kind of environment in the store, they have these AR um applications that allow the viewer to see the full outfit and what it would look like. Then what's even cooler is you can then use your smartphone to buy it immediately, which obviously they would like you to do so. Um, but they're making it much easier and a more interactive experience than just going in and, you know, thumbing through uh, what's available and you know, maybe trying stuff on, but this really takes it to a different level as the consumer can actually kind of picture themselves in what the full ensemble would look like so that, yeah, you can get that skirt, but it really looks great with the shirt and the jacket and the accessories and all those kind of things. Yeah, and it really encourages people to actually visit the brick and mortar location. So as retailers have kind of struggled to adapt to the new world of online shopping in, in a lot of ways, this actually incentivizes people to go into the store and try these technologies and actually uh, utilize them uh, to make sure that they're making the best decisions. So when you talk about the Target example, making sure that the lipstick is the right shade for them so then they don't have to go through the added, um, the, the added hassle of 
of taking it back to the store. Or at Zara, you can immediately make that purchase, which works out great for the realtor or retailer because then you get people making impulse buys, you know, and that sort of thing. So then you're getting people into the store where then they're more likely to buy more things as they look around and they see things. Uh, it seems to be a great strategy for retailers. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And I think what Zara is doing is kind of like bridging the gap between brick and mortar and e-commerce and bringing it into the physical location. Um, I don't I don't know if any of our listeners have ever been to Azara. Um, they are a Spanish brand, but we do have plenty of them here in the U.S. as well. And their store layouts are really nice and very open. Um, so I can only—I have not seen the actual um, technology in person. It's been a while since I've been to Azara, um, but I can see how it would automatically fit into the you know, their merchandising type of layout and just the whole kind of mood of the store, which is very, um, it's very sophisticated and very like, you know, you're very much in the, in the fashion realm of the world. Yeah, it's kind of a trendy European type feeling place. You mentioned it's Spanish. I, I've, I've been to Azara. I'm kind of a smaller guy, so it I actually like some of their stuff because it fits uh, the way that I would like for things to fit sometimes. Right. Uh, so I, I like that store. And it, you're, you're totally right. I think it makes sense just with their overall layout and the overall feel of the store that they're going for. Um, now, there's also an example of uh, VR, VR being used in Singapore. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk us through that example as well. Yeah, sure. So, Singapore is certainly known for technology and being on the cutting edge of doing everything that's really cool. Um, so, there's this retail complex called 313 at Somerset. And um, so they cooked up this little VR sleigh um, to add, you know, an experience for shoppers. What really it did is it keeps the kids um, occupied while mom and dad could actually do some shopping. Um, they worked with a company called Eon Reality, and they really wanted to, you know, step up their their Christmas game, so to speak, and it, from from what I saw, and I obviously didn't actually see it in Singapore, but from what I um, read and looked at, it it was really a successful campaign for them, and turned out to be something that kids and parents really liked. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. And, and again, another example of freeing people up in physical store locations uh, to be able to then browse and shop around and maybe buy more than what they would have bought if they had just gone online with the intention of buying just one thing. So getting them in the store and then giving them an experience beyond just the usual online experience or just the typical brick and mortar experience. And I really do think that this is an interesting blend and using the Pro-AV technology, you know, AR, VR, lots of different things is, uh, is really helping bridge that gap like you mentioned earlier, uh, across the various sectors of retail, be it, you know, be it the, the physical brick and mortar locations or the e-commerce side, using this Pro-AV uh, technology is really helping bridge that gap. And I think you're right, and your article really uh, does a great job of displaying that, just talking about um, how retailers are doing it and how they're innovating in the holiday season. And so uh, it was a really, really exciting look. And uh, I thank you so much for uh, joining me here on the Pro-AV podcast to, uh, to share that with us. Thank you. It was lovely chatting with you. And I'm sure that this is a topic um, that we will 
come back to because AR and VR are certainly the future um, of that retail in-store experience. Absolutely. That is Beth Osborne, our market scale correspondent, joining us here on the Pro AV podcast. Thank you again, Beth. Thanks again to Beth Osborne for joining the podcast today and providing her insight there on how ProAV was utilized in retail spaces over the holiday season. I'm really looking to see if that trend continues of using AR and VR to really bridge that gap between brick and mortar locations and e-commerce. It's going to be something fascinating to watch for in 2019. All right, coming up next is that conversation that my colleague Daniel Litwin had with Tim Albright, the president of AV Nation Media, and they're going to talk about security for ProAV devices. And securing data is really one of the more important things that is being discussed these days in and around IoT circles. Uh, Pro-AV is also included in that. So they're going to talk about whose responsibility it is to make sure that installations are safe, easy to use, and well protected against bad actors. That is coming up next on the Market Scale Pro-AV podcast. Securing Data it's the focus of conversation from healthcare's EHRs to industrial IoT's smart cities. The Pro-AV industry is no stranger to security either, but as the connective power of installations continue to grow and customers demand more capabilities, new security risks present themselves. Whose responsibility is it to make sure installations are safe, easy to use, and as well protected against bad actors as possible? The clients? The integrators? The manufacturers? Tim Albright, president of AV Nation Media, has a simple answer. He's coming on today's episode of the Pro AV Podcast to chat about his preparation for Cedia and dig into the recent struggles with security in Pro AV, including who's liable for successful integrations, knowing global regulation differences, and how to simply solve the security issue. Tim, how are you doing today? I am well, Daniel. How are you? So I want to move into the main topic of the conversation with you, which is security of AV systems. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think it's a huge talking point. I mean, it's something that shows up a lot with Internet of Things as things are getting more connected from whether it's a business point of view, you know, you're connecting um, all the functions of your building or Internet of Things with the devices you're using like Pro AV installations. That is a huge, huge talking point. And it also is on the commercial end uh, with things like Google Home, Amazon Alexa, and uh, customers getting worried that, you know, is my speech being transmitted to third parties? You know, how is this being protected? How, um, how is my gear being protected from being hacked? All that conversation is so potent right now. So I want to know from you, since you live and breathe AV every day, what has the focus of that conversation been in the pro AV space, security? Uh, I would love to tell you that it's been robust and dynamic and we know what we're doing and, and we've got everything locked down and we've got best practices and we have standards going on. Uh, I would love to tell you that, <laughs> but, we don't, but we don't. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those areas that folks who know it know it really well. And they have their their standards and they have their operating procedures going on and, and in their integration houses, they have a, a good system. And there are others that don't. And I'm not here to, to throw mud or disparage one integrator or another or one manufacturer or another. There are simple best practices when it comes to security of a, of a network. And 
there is still um, stories being written in, in the wider tech press of us not doing it as, as a whole. Two or three years ago now, there was a, a DDoS attack, a denial of disservice, distributed denial of service attack on a number of servers um, around the, the eastern seaboard. Brought down Netflix, brought down Twitter in, in those geographic areas. And uh, if you go to a, a gentleman by the name of Krebs on Security, uh, his, his site, he lists actually the, all of the devices that were involved in that attack. And a number of them were, you know, cameras and DVRs and things of that, that nature. And in the middle of those is a powered, networked, two-way, professional, con- cons- commercial speaker from a manufacturer that, that, that commercial integrators would know and love and, and put in every day. Uh, that was striking, right? Um, then you had the, the Ars Technica article that showed that a, a installed system in, in a government installation of, of a, cons- of a uh, control system had a backdoor, right? And there was a lot made of that. And, and then you had another article here recently of another control system being highlighted at a, a, a DEF CON uh, event. That one was a theoretical. It was not a, a real world, but it was it was show, showcasing a, an, an exploit. And that one really has kind of got me going on this this I guess evangelistic route of saying we can do better because there are best practices. And that one specifically, because it was so theoretical, the article uh, from Wired actually goes is, just does say that there are authentication practices the manufacturer put in place that simply, you know, if you turn them on, then it would prevent this, this DEF CON hack to happen. And that line right there, if, if they were turned on, and they are not turned on by default, they are turned off by default. And we, ha- we can have a conversation about whether or not manufacturers should do that. But as the integrators, though, these should be practices that we put into place. Changing the logins and the passwords from default should be best practice, should happen before you ever leave that client's site and letting them know what those logins and passwords are. And and, and some of these things are, are not necessarily common sense because and I say that because it's not being done a, you know, a number of times, but it's stuff that we can do. It, it's sim- it's not simple, but it, it, it's, a, it's a, a process that we can put down on paper and say, have we done X, Y, and Z? Did we take the control processor, do we take the projector, do we take you know, the, the switcher, all these things that are by and large 90, 95% of the stuff that we put in are ending up on the network. So did we take that device that has a default login and password and did we change that? If the answer is no, then do it and you know, document what you change it to and then give it to the client and let them know that yes, it was done and this is the new login and password. Um, I, I think that is, is, it is, it is a, it's something that we can do to not lo- only let our IT managers know that, you know, yes, we understand that this is a, you know, this is a concern and that we are taking the steps, the proper steps that we know to safeguard not only, you know, our equipment and our network, but also your network and, and your place of business. Well, it sounds like the issue really is that both parties are sort of expecting the other to do it with something so simple. It's the clients expecting, okay, yeah, the integrators, when they put it in, they're going to change the passwords. But then also the integrators, when they're done installing the technology, they think, oh, yeah, our clients are smart enough to hop in there and just change it to something safe. But each party assumes the other's just going to do it. 
and then nothing happens. And then that's like a, a feeding frenzy for people looking to hack into that kind of technology. There's a, a quote that I, I reference when I talk to integrators about security. And it's it's an older quote, but it, it highlights how we have evolved over the last four or five years. And it was a manufacturer that I was interviewing. And, and I asked the question whether or not they were worried about network security. And again, this is about four years ago. And they said, no, what, what's the worst thing that somebody can do is, is you know, turn on the projector. And, and that's a little naive um, because it's not the, the act of turning on the projector or turning off the lights or what have you. But these devices, now that they are living on the network a lot of times, they're gateways, right? It's a, it's a weak point in the network architecture as a whole. And so, you know, bad actors are using these these unauthenticated or, or unprotected or poorly protected AV devices to gain access to the network as a whole. And there are absolutely, there are ways around this. Um, you can completely separate the network and not have any network activity at all and not have any network access at all for these AV devices. Well, okay, that that is an option. But now you're you're um, eliminating an entire suite of options that these wonderful AV devices have developed that require access, um, whether that is remote control, or, you know, remote access, or uh, network reporting, or you know, uses usage reportings. All those options and all those features require network as a whole access, and some of them require uh, internet access, you know, access to the outside world. So separating and creating a separate AV quote unquote network is not really a, a real option anymore if you want all of these features and benefits. So, okay, so if that's not an option, well, what's the, what's the next step? Well, the next step is, is doing what I said, you know, you, you can create a VLAN and you can have, you know, one port between the, the AV VLAN and, and the rest of the network. And that's fine. A bad actor could still get access uh, if they know what they're doing and if the AV devices are not properly secured. So understanding, you know, all, you know authentication, like turning it on and making sure that, that you know, again, the, the, the default passwords and, and things of that nature are changed and documented um, and only a handful of folks inside both your organization and the client's organization know what those are. And, you know, I know there are a lot of mergers and acquisitions coming through the chain here in the pro-AV industry. And that makes me wonder, you know, do these larger companies have more um, safeguards in place for this kind of thing to make sure that the security is on lock, the the little things are in place, but also the more complex, um, you know, back-end technology to make sure that the gear is safe. Is that coming down the chain as well with these mergers and acquisitions? Or as smaller companies are being taken over by the big players, is there a disconnect there? And then there's actually more risk for security breaches. Okay. Manufacturers, I, I, there is the potential for things to get um, left and for things to get lost within the, the process of, of doing the acquisition. Whether it's letting folks go and, and you know those folks knowing where, where everything is hidden and all the ins and outs are. But m most manufacturers have a very good documentation process. Um, they know the code and, and even if someone leaves, whether it's you know being let go or they, they leave of their own volition, they have in, in the code and in the documentation where all the ins and outs are, right? And ins and outs is a nice way of saying the back doors uh, and the security issues and, and the vulnerabilities. 
So there, there's, you know, as you're doing the acquisition, that process has to be transferred and that knowledge has to be transferred to the acquiring manufacturer so they understand and they know what all of the potentials, uh, potential risks are uh, of, you know, product A, product B, product C. Integrators, though, as, as they're moving uh, and, and changing and, and acquiring folks, um, that actually, I think, is a bigger, uh, is the bigger potential issue because sometimes documentation doesn't necessarily get transferred over or it's held in a local office um, because a lot of times the acquisitions are, you know, uh, you know, medium sized companies acquiring somebody in a new market. And so that documentation is held locally where it might be better served to be held in a central location so they can apply their best practices to existing customers and say, oh, wait, you know what? This does not meet our standards. We need to go back into this client and, you know, get them up up to par from a security standpoint uh, with the rest of our clients. So do you think that responsibility for making sure that integrators are well-educated on the security of of their products, do you think that falls down to the larger company, right? The bigger fish that is um, merging, consolidating, uh, acquiring? Or do you think it falls more to the actual integrators themselves, like the people going in, integrating the products? Do you think it falls to them to turn to something like Avixa, let's say, and take some personal lessons, right? Or or try to find, you know, like, okay, we encourage you to do this, but we don't really have the resources to do it, so you need to do it on your own. The last person to touch a network is the one most responsible for it. And I say that knowing who that usually is, and that's usually the integrator. It is their responsibility. I was as a, a part of a PSNI event uh, about a year and a half ago. And a woman by the name of Teresa Payton, who was the first, I want to say, CIO of the White House under uh, George W. Bush, she did a presentation and she's a security expert and she was doing question and answer and and, an integrator asked about liability. She made the comment that if you're touching customer data at all, you are liable. Uh, And I would actually take it a step further. If it can be proved that you are a point of weakness and you are the access point for a bad actor, you would also, you could also be held liable. That means both financially and and in a civil suit. So, and I'm not a lawyer, so don't, you know, don't take legal advice from me, Uh, but check with your lawyer and lawyers and check with your, your insurance companies and make sure that you are covered, but also put into practice the best practices to make sure that you're doing everything you can. Every security expert known to man will tell you, there is no such thing as a lockdown, 100% foolproof network. The only one that exists is when you unplug the network jack. That's a completely, you know, unbreakable network. So let's start there. You know, there, there are folks who, if given time and resources and, and they have passion or the need to get into a network, they're going to get access to it. But you should not be the easiest, weakest link for them to get into. Because if you are, and it can be proved that you were, then you you set yourself up for some pretty substantial you know damages depending on on what happened once they gained access to the network and i think that presents another potential issue which you know as integrators are becoming more global and you know you have more companies that are looking to be able to create similar experiences in the states across the seas easily and you know that that puts integrators in more global environments and i feel like those global environments 
are going to be different. You know, you're going to deal with different networks, different kinds of security issues. What kinds of differences do you see and how could you see that being a challenge for integrators, um, you know, trying to set up these networks on a global scale, multinational? Um, do you find different challenges in different countries and different sects of the world? Vastly. Everything from as simple as um, local and regional and countries-wide regulations and laws that require you to do, to do certain things. GDPR is, is a, is a simple thing to point to. It doesn't necessarily impact um, dealers in, in the installation. Um, GDPR is, is an EU regulation. Uh, and if you, you know what you know, GDPR um, stands for, it is the government regulation that requires folks to make sure it's a, it's a double uh, opt-in for email list and, and make sure that you understand that what you you are signing up for and that the person taking your information is going to protect it um that is a example of a local you know eu wide regulation that impacts that would impact dealers if they're trying if they're gathering um email lists those same types of regulations are you know don't necessarily translate to you know Southeast Asia or to the US or to Canada or to Mexico. So the dealer, it's the dealer's responsibility to understand the regulations and the laws that govern networks and govern security in the area that they are installing the system, not where they live and not where their, their clients, you know, corporate headquarters are, but the office that they're actually working in and where they're actually rolling up a network. The laws that govern that geographic area, they're responsible for knowing and they're responsible for following. And you're, you're right in, in the fact that, that this is going to become a little bit more complicated for folks as the, the, the global integrator you know, comes, comes to fruition, whether it's AVISPL or Whitlock or, or Varix or you know, uh, multi, these um, multi-regional uh, and multinational Groups like PSNI and, and the Global Alliance, you know, these folks are, are doing great jobs taking their their multinational clients and being able to recreate this great experience that they've had in you know the the office in in New Jersey and, and translating that and, and transporting that to someplace else you know around the globe. That experience, you know, it should be able to to be translated. That's great, but sometimes the process of of transmitting that to this new location is going to come with its own difficulties when it comes to security regulations in country. Um, and that would be, you know, not just necessarily, it's not the client's responsibility to let you know, Hey, by the way, you have to have this, you have to have uh, two factor authentication on all of our network devices because in, in India you have to have that. And I'm using that as an example. I don't know specifically if you have to have that in India, but you know, let's say that in India you have to have, Two-factor authentication, and it has to do to do um, this sort of, of security protocols. Well, it's not your client's responsibility to let you know that it's yours, because again, the last person to touch that network is likely the one most responsible for it. And if you don't know and you don't do what the law says you have to do, then you're 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 opening yourself again again up to a, a liability. It's frightening out there, but at the same time, it's reassuring to know that it doesn't take that much effort to solve the issue, right? That if people just make sure that they are 
educated on the simple installation guidelines, making sure that they know the laws of the area that they're installing their products, and then also doing little things like you said earlier, changing the default passwords, right? Such a simple thing, but if you don't do it, you are just creating a perfect environment for bad actors to get in there and steal data. So it's it's good to know that the solution isn't that hard to accomplish. It's just getting everyone on the same page. It is. It is. And, and, and we use the login and password as a simple example, but it is. And that and I, I don't want to necessarily harp on that, but I, I go back to the DDoS attack and, and Krebs on Security's example. The fact that a, a, a two-way speaker was used as part of a, of a botnet storm should never happen, right? Um, it, and we have to change people's mindset when it comes to these devices. It is a network device. If it has a network jack and it's on your network, it is a network device and it should be protected as such. Uh, I don't care if it's a speaker. I don't care if it's a projector. I don't care if it's an occupancy sensor. There is the the possibility of any network device, if a bad actor can get into it, they can use it for nefarious purposes, whether that's getting into your network or using it again as a, as part of one of these these botnets and create a a storm against a a server or a, a a farm of servers. So if you're doing everything that you can again, changing the password, putting in you know authenticate, turning on authentication, then you've done everything you can. And <laughs> I, I one of my security friends said, "Look, hackers are lazy, right? Hackers are just lazy. If if you if you've changed the default login and password to something." They're going to move on to somebody else who doesn't take security as, as seriously as you do. So they're not going to use your system. You're not going to use your device. They'll move on to somebody who hasn't changed the login and password or who doesn't have a login and password into their, into their network. I did a presentation uh, about a year or so ago um, and I, talking about network security and AV network security. And there was a, a website called Shodan, Shodan.io. And it's a search engine for internet connected devices. And if you go on there and you type in the name of an AV manufacturer, I don't care who you do, they're going to give you the IP addresses of any publicly facing device that matches that search query, right? So let's say that we use Acme switchers, right? And we type in Acme switchers and they're going to show us all of the all of the uh, I, publicly facing I, IP addresses. And if you know the, the login and password, the default login and password for Acme switchers, you can access that that switcher with the IP address provided and type it in. And suddenly you have access to somebody else's switcher that's on, you know, some campus somewhere or some Fortune 500 company somewhere. That's a scary thought that something that somebody like me who is not a hacker in any way, shape or form can pretty easily go and, and get access to, let's say, a wireless presentation system or somebody's switcher or somebody's projector. If I was a hacker, suddenly I have access to this person's network. And all I had to do to prevent that was, again, to change the login, the default login and password to something else. Um, and we can have a conversation you know, later with, with smarter people than me about you know, how many bits and this, that, and the other, and the encryption rate, and whether you need to use symbols or uppercase and lowercase and all that jazz and 16 and 28 characters. That's a different conversation. But change the flip and default. Let's start there. And then we can have those other conversations. Right, exactly. Thanks to my colleague Daniel Litwin for conducting that interview and to Tim Albright, president of AV Nation Media, for joining us on the show this week. 
Unfortunately, that's all we have time for on the Pro AV Podcast for this episode. We do appreciate you listening very much. There is a lot more content just like it over at marketscale.com if you find the industry Pro AV. There's a lot of written content as well as more podcasts just like this one. You can also subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure that this gets downloaded to your phone or your other device immediately as soon as it comes out uh, so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Pro AV Podcast. But until then, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening. Yeah.